Well, Lord, in the, in the light of the rising sun, we pray that you would allow us to see him in a new way this morning, alive and present and at work in our midst. And we pray that in the light of him, you would allow us to see all things new. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved Covenant family. It's so good to be with you all. Happy Easter. And kiddos, what a joy to see you and to be with you. I have missed you, and I'm so glad to see your faces. Thanks for that wave. Well, what a couple of weeks. Oh, kids, by the way, thank you so much for leading us in worship last Sunday. That was so awesome. Thank you for helping us come before the king and honor him and bring him glory. You did a great job. Well, what a couple of weeks it's been. Two weeks ago, Sharon and I hopped on the plane and we went out to San Diego and I was blessed to be able to perform the wedding of our fourth, Corey. Uh, you may, wow, just looking at that. Um, some of you probably still remember Corey as that two-year-old little blonde hiding behind my legs on the very first Sunday that we arrived here all those years ago. What an incredible week of celebration and joy and delight together. And then this past week had a little bit of a different feel for me and for us. Um, a number of you know that uh, I've been, um, I had a, uh, a ride in an ambulance to the ER and uh, had, have had some challenging issues of back and hip and pinched nerve and who's, who knows what else is going on. The pain has subsided some, but uh, still some discomfort and still questions about uh, what, um, what I'm facing and, and what's ahead of us. But uh, I just want to express my deep gratitude on, on both of our part uh, for uh, your uh, really sweet compassion and concern for us in the middle of all this and for the way you've thrown over us the blanket of your prayers that has meant so much to us. And I also just want to express, wow, what an incredible uh, and competent and faithful team uh, we have here as the staff of this church. Um, it was so fun to not have a single moment this entire week where I even had the slightest hesitation about whether or not our staff was capable of shepherding the church family through our worship experience, including this morning. Uh, so I am so grateful to our team, and I'm so grateful to you all as my family. Well, this morning we focus on the miracle and the wonder of Jesus stepping out of the tomb three days after his dead body was placed in it. But the place that I'd like to start the story is not with the events that happened on Easter Sunday when the empty tomb was discovered and the risen Lord Jesus was encountered, but with a conversation that happened four days earlier on Monday Thursday. The night before his death, Jesus gathers with his disciples and knowing that they are going to be going on into the world without him, he puts before them an invitation to a life lived in his service. But the disciples are so distracted by his having said that he would be leaving them for a time. He said in 1620, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but 
your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. And you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So when Jesus says to the disciples, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, clearly he is referring to the um, resurrection that is just about to take place and the death that will come before that. The grief he's talking about is their grief over his death, which will happen the next day. And then the joy that they, he is talking about is the joy that they'll experience three days later when they encounter him risen from the dead. So in, in that context... In the context back then, when the disciples first heard these words, your grief will turn to joy, means my resurrection will reverse my death. It will undo it. And that will reverse your pain and your loss. Your grief will not be the end of the story. Your grief will go away. And in fact, that's exactly what happened as we know the story. And we heard in the passage read at the start of the service. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. And it says the disciples were, in fact, overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This promise has come true for them. The one that they thought that they'd lost forever has been returned to them. His death was reversed and they are overjoyed. But how do we hear those words from this side of the resurrection? Here we sit 2,000 years after Jesus promises to turn his followers' grief into joy. And the resurrection is literally ancient history for us now. Do those words have any meaning for us today? When Jesus says, our grief will turn to joy, is there any sense in which we can take that as a promise for us today? Well, not, I'm afraid, in the way that we might first hope. I think that there is a temptation for all of us to want Jesus to be the wizard who waves his wand over our lives and makes all the difficulties fall away. We want him to reverse the circumstances that bring us grief, whatever those might be, just like he did when he rose from the dead. We want him to undo whatever it is that undoes us. Give me back my parents. Give me back my son. Give me back my friend. Give me back my job. Give me back my health. Give me another shot at the team. Give me another try at the exam. Give me a do-over on that conversation I just had. Give me a do-over on the way I lived my life today. Give me a do-over on my marriage. Give me a do-over on my whole life. When Jesus promises that our grief will turn to joy, it isn't a promise that Jesus will come along and reverse the circumstances that we don't like, that somehow he'll undo and redo them. He doesn't promise to remove the things that are difficult from our lives. In fact, Jesus is clear that we need to expect grief and loss and trouble to be part of our lives in this fallen world. In John chapter 16, 33, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. So no, the circumstances that cause us grief and loss and pain and struggle and disappointment, Jesus doesn't promise to reverse those like he reversed his death. 
I don't know if you've thought about this. There is a sense in which life is like a ratchet wrench. A ratchet wrench is one of those wrenches that, that only tightens in one direction. If you press against a bolt in one direction, it, it digs it down deeper into the wood or, or into the nut that it's joined to. But if you turn it the other way and you try to loosen that same bolt, the, the wrench just spins around freely. It doesn't have any grab. It doesn't have any purchase on that bolt. And there is a sense of life being like that. And that's what the hardest parts of life often feel like. They come into our lives and then they just lodge there and they just dig in deeper and they don't go away. Sure, there are wonderful exceptions. Someone loses a job and then gets a new and better one. Someone else is diagnosed with cancer and then after treatment is declared cancer-free. Two friends go through a painful break in their relationship and then they're reconciled and they're even closer after they have walked through their conflict. But in general, grief has a permanence to it, doesn't it? It's a way of, of, of settling in and staying with us. Loss tends to be final. Separation is often irrecoverable and, and death is always irrevocable. So when Jesus promises that our grief will turn into joy, he isn't promising us that he will step in and reverse the circumstances that caused us grief in the first place. Which makes it so interesting then to see that in John chapter 17, we see Jesus prayerfully anticipating that the lives of all of his followers will in fact be marked by joy. Not some of us, some of the time, circumstances allowing, but that all of us will experience joy. John chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus prays to his father, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, meaning us, his followers, that, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So somehow, Jesus' followers can anticipate a life of joy even amid their troubles. How? What joy can we count on if we can't count on all that is difficult being undone? Is grief being turned to joy really just an empty promise? Well, no. It turns out that even though we can't count on Jesus reversing our difficulties, as his followers, we can count on Jesus turning our grief, all of our grief, in two remarkable and hopeful ways into joy, if we will let him. First, though Jesus doesn't promise to reverse our painful circumstances, he does promise to remain with us in them, which has the effect of transforming them. Whatever we find ourselves facing, we can be confident of this. The risen Lord Jesus will meet us will meet me in this. That promise is captured in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I am always with you. That word behold is like a flashing light on a highway sign. It says, hey, notice this. Factor this in. Take this into account as you travel forward from here. Jesus says he is always with us, not fleetingly, not 
from time to time, not just in the good times, but always. He will remain with us always. He will be with us in and through all things. So he transforms our griefs and our losses and our struggles, not by reversing them, not by removing them, but by being with us in them and moving us through them. I don't recall who said this, but it is a game-changing way to think about the way we pray. The one prayer we can be confident that God will always answer is that he will give us himself. One of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite stories is when Frodo, paddling away, says to Sam in The Lord of the Rings, go back, Sam, I'm going to Mordor alone. And Sam, wading out into the water after him, says, of course you are, and I'm going with you. (laughs) That is the true promise of the resurrection for us today. The promise that makes this promise of grief turning into joy come to life for us. Your grief will turn to joy means, in part, that Jesus will be with you in whatever grief you will ever face. This week, I just finished reading a, um, an amazing and appalling true mountain climbing story of two friends. It's called Touching the Void. It's about two friends who were roped together and climbing a rock face in the Andes when one of them fell and broke his leg. After trying to lower his injured friend down the mountainside, he eventually found himself in an impossible place. His friend had gone over an overhang and was hanging by the end of the rope. And he found his grip beginning to slip and his footing beginning to slip. And he knew that in a moment, he would go over the side with his friend. So rather than die, he cut the rope and he let his friend fall off the cliff and into a crevasse. Now, miraculously, both of them survived the ordeal. Jesus will never cut the rope. He is always with us. He will never let us down. My loss, my struggle, my pain is transformed into joy when I know that Jesus is with me in it bringing me the comfort and the strength of his presence, giving me grace sufficient for whatever it is that I may face. Because whatever I face, I will never face alone. So think about some of the causes of grief and pain in your life right now. What does it mean for you to know that Jesus will be with you in it? Kids, sometimes when you look around, it seems like there's nobody else near you. It seems like you are all alone. But in those times, your eyes are not telling you the truth. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he is alive and he is with us. And if you believe in him, you can know for sure that there will never again be a time in your whole life when you will be all alone. Well, here's the 
other startling aspect of this promise for us today. When Jesus says our grief will turn to joy, he isn't promising to reverse our griefs, but he is promising to redeem them. Sometimes, in answer to prayer and to put his glory on display, he will reverse our circumstances temporarily. But always, because of who he is and because of his love for us, always he will redeem our circumstances. How do we know that? Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven. And in the book of Revelation, we are given a glimpse into that realm and into his heart. And we see the king seated on the throne. And we hear the voice of the one seated on the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, notice this, factor this in. Take this into account as you move forward from here in life. All things. I am making new. Nothing in our lives falls outside of God's redeeming touch. Nothing. When he rose from the dead, he not only rose to be with us, he rose to rule over us and to rule over all things, including the circumstances of our lives. And he is able to order things such that in his hands, by the alchemy of his grace, all things, including those that cause us so much pain and grief, All things are transformed with redemptive purpose. That's what's behind those seemingly absurd statements in the New Testament, like those in James chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1 and and Romans chapter 5 that say that we can count it all joy when we go through difficulties because in the hands of Jesus, those painful circumstances are transformed from mere pain and loss into experiences that deepen our faith and grow us in love and make us more like Jesus and draw us closer to him. They are redeemed. In the kingdom of God, nothing goes into the barrels marked direct to landfill. It all goes into the recycling bin and is transformed. Nothing is thrown away. Nothing is lost. Nothing is wasted. In the hands of Jesus, everything we face is transformed into something redemptive. That doesn't mean that it will be without pain, but it will never be without purpose. This takes us back to the words that Jesus says in John chapter 16, where he says the pain and the grief that the disciples feel are like birth pangs. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets her anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. What a profound image. I was there when Sharon gave birth to uh, each of our kids, and what an incredible blessing that experience was. And I will never forget when our first one, Brandon, came after Sharon labored for 24 hours and then had a C-section after that. And all of Sharon's pain fell away as she folded Brandon's into her arms for the first time. In the hands of the great Redeemer, even something like a herniated disc or a pinched nerve can give birth to something other than mere pain. Jesus says that for his followers, all of our griefs and losses and struggles are fruit-bearing, are life-giving There is no such thing as mere unrelenting loss for a follower of Jesus. There is only redemptive loss in his hands. Loss that Jesus makes endurable by his abiding presence and loss that Jesus makes beautiful by his redeeming power. 
Think again of some of those moments in your life that have caused the greatest pain and grief. What does it mean for you to know not only that Jesus will remain with you in them, but that Jesus will ultimately redeem every one of them? That he will transform them, using them as holy means for his loving ends. Means by which he lifts you higher and takes you deeper and draws you nearer, all the while making you more and more like himself. Kids, sometimes we can think that there are two kinds of things that we go through, that there are two boxes we can put everything in. There are the bad things and there are the good things. And sometimes we can get the message that God is only involved with the good things and that he's not involved with the bad things. But because Jesus rose from the dead and he is on the throne and he is working all things together for good, if we believe in him, even when we go through those hard things, we can know that they are in a bigger box that is labeled things that will turn out well. Because all things serve God's will and all things are in his good and loving hands. So all of this takes us back to a fascinating detail in John's resurrection account. The story of the first Easter starts, you remember, with Mary Magdalene going to the tomb while it's still dark. Finding the tomb open and empty, she runs and she finds Peter and John who, who come and they inspect the tomb and then they leave the scene. And now Mary is left at the tomb alone. But as she's crying next to the tomb, the risen Lord Jesus appears to her. John chapter 20, verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. He says, or she says, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Mary thinks Jesus is a gardener because it says at the end of John chapter 19, verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I love this. Think about the significance of Jesus being buried in a garden. When we as human beings think about death, what sort of a place comes to mind? A cemetery, a graveyard, a tomb, right? But when we are thinking of life, what sort of a place captures the idea of life more than a garden? Gardens have always been symbols of life at its most beautiful and its most bountiful. It isn't accidental that the biblical story begins and ends with a garden. There's a garden at the beginning in Genesis before sin has stained the world. And there's a garden at the end in Revelation once the world has been scrubbed clean of sin again. And it isn't accidental that at the hinge point of redemptive history, the resurrection, when death is swallowed up in life, it isn't accidental that that also happens in a garden. Nor is it coincidental that Jesus is mistaken for a gardener. Think of how many of his best-known parables have to do with growing things, with soil and plants and trees and fruit and vines and branches, including the, the parable that the disciples heard Jesus speak just a few days before this. 
In John chapter 12, when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus, the gardener, making all things new, begins by making himself new, rising to life. And then he begins to make us new, raising us to life as well with him. This week I wrote a little poem about this case of mistaken identity that I call Garden Plot. Gardener tilling among the tombs, what do you sow? The blood of God. From the lamb whom this world slaughters. Gardener milling among the blooms, what do you grow? The brood of God his very sons and daughters. I love the painting of this moment by Rembrandt. It shows a garden in the deep dark of pre-dawn, the feeble light of a lantern on the ground swallowed up by the darkness of the early morning and the open tomb. And Mary is on her knees in front of that tomb, the jar of anointing oil on the ground next to her. She holds in one hand the handkerchief with which she's been wiping her eyes. But she's caught at just the moment when Jesus has spoken her name. Her head is turning. Her, eye, her face is wide with wonder. Her, her hands are flying up in joy. And over her shoulder stands Jesus, a shovel in one hand, wearing a jaunty wide-brimmed hat, ready to go to work, lit from head to toe, by the first penetrating beam of sunlight as the sun crests the horizon. He leans over Mary in patient and expectant joy, wondering when it will finally dawn on her that he is risen and that that changes everything. The risen Lord Jesus stands here in the mud and the ashes of our lives in the midst of all that causes us grief and sadness and sorrow. And he promises to us as his followers, your grief will turn to joy. For behold, I am always with you. And behold, I am making all things new. Glory to God. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we stand here in this Easter hope of your transformative presence and your transformative touch. You, King of kings, risen from the dead, we honor and we worship you. We open our lives anew to you. And we give you all praise.